Well, there's a story in the news that caught national attention a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you caught it, but um, someone in the Rocky Mountains found buried treasure. It was a box, a 42-pound box that was filled with gold coins and golden nuggets and gems. It was estimated to be valued at around $2 million. It's pretty crazy, but the, actually, if that's not crazy enough, the backstory is even crazier. In 2010, an art collector from New Mexico by the name of Forrest Finn planted this treasure, buried this treasure in the ground somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, and then he published this memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, where he announced this treasure hunt and put all these clues inside of it where you could find this treasure. He included a 24-line cryptic poem that, if you could make sense of the poem, told you exactly where this treasure was buried. Now, since that was announced in 2010, literally tens of thousands of people have gathered from all over the world, descending upon the Rocky Mountains, searching for this buried treasure. And if you're familiar, of course, with this terrain, it's, it's, it's dangerous terrain. And so people were getting hurt searching for this treasure. In 2013, there was this woman that got lost hunting for this treasure box. And she had to spend the night, the, the night in the freezing cold between two boulders until she was rescued in the morning. Uh, several people were hurt. Two people were actually killed in the process of hunting for this treasure, so much so that just, a, just three years ago, the New Mexico police came to this guy, and they were like, you have got to call this thing off. It is, it is endangering people's well-being and their safety, and he refused to do it. And so finally, after 10 years, somebody just a couple of weeks ago found the treasure, I guess deciphered this this poem dug up this treasure and came upon $2 million worth of gold and gems, which, by the way, the article that I read said that, unfortunately, it still is, uh, you know, taxable as income by the IRS. So, there you go. But it's an amazing story, and I think it's so fascinating because we just love treasure hunting stories. I mean, when I was a kid, I loved stories and movies about pirates with, you know, treasure maps. Uh, I think this is why we love the antique road show of just people finding treasure. This is why we love the national treasure movies with Nicolas Cage. You know, I, I think this is, you know, honestly, I think if we're honest, when you go to estate sales, I think what you're doing is you're actually treasure hunting. You're looking for treasure. Maybe there's something here that I can get a good deal. I can find something that's awesome. We love treasure hunting stories, and that's what, that's what this is. That's in this passage before us in Matthew 13. Jesus tells us a, a story about hidden treasure. And the treasure that he's talking about is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You see this in verse 44. He says, look how it begins. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom, he says, is supremely valuable. It's the kingdom of heaven, which, of course, raises this question. Okay, what does he mean when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is just kind of, is the Bible's way of talking about God's rule as king, his redemptive rule, that when he sets up shop 
and governs an individual person. It's, it's that the kingdom has come over that person's life. And as Christians, we pray and we labor for God to set up shop as king, not just over our individual hearts, but also over our city, also over our country, over the whole world. This is why Christians pray for God's will to be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. We want God to set up shop and rule down here in the same way he's ruling up here because uh, up there because down here is kind of a mess. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of God is this, is this treasure that we're all craving and longing for. And what Jesus does in this really short little passage is, is he gives you three features about the treasure of the kingdom. And so that's what I want to unpack with you this morning are these three features of the treasure of the kingdom, and, and they're this. The treasure of the kingdom, it's easy to miss, it costs you everything, and it motivates with joy. Three features of the treasure of the kingdom. It's easy to miss, it is, it's going to cost you everything, and it motivates with joy. So let's look at these one at a time. Here's what I mean by that the treasure of the kingdom is easy to miss. It's interesting, but this passage is three verses long, but it's actually two different parables, two different stories. In the first story, it's about a guy in a field, and he's not out there looking for anything. He's not on a treasure hunt. He's just out there doing life and digging, and he you know, hits buried treasure, which actually in this day and age wouldn't have been that crazy because back in Jesus' day, banks didn't exist. And so if you had something of value, and there was an invading army, or if, if you needed to f leave town for some reason, you didn't have anywhere to put this thing, and so you would just bury it someplace. But the problem was, is if you moved and you never returned, or if, if, if you died, then nobody knew where this stuff was hidden, and so there's just treasure buried all over the place. And in Jesus' story, here's this guy, he's presumably uh, a day laborer, and he's out in the field doing his job and he's working and he's digging and he finds treasure of unspeakable value. Now the second story, it's about a guy that is, is actively searching. He is himself on a treasure hunt. He would be the guy with the metal detector at the beach looking for something of value because he's a pearl merchant. And pearl merchants, what they would do is they would go into the marketplace and they would go to different shops of people that were selling pearls and they would look for good pearls that they would buy and then try to sell off for a profit later. And here he comes to this one stand and he catches this pearl amongst all the other pearls that he sees this is unspeakably valuable. He sees it when nobody else does. Now, both of these stories kind of remind me of this um, social experiment that was put out by the Washington Post a number of years ago on, on perception. This is a YouTube video. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've heard other pastors tell the story. This is a story that gets told a lot. But a number of years ago, Joshua Bell, who's this famous uh, violinist, uh, world-renowned musician, he posted up at a subway station in Washington, D.C. in the early morning hours when everybody was coming and going and on their way to work and on their way out and about the day, and he plays this violin, which, by the way, was valued at $3.5 million, and he's posted up in the corner by a trash can. They have all these hidden cameras. And uh, it's fascinating. Three nights before, he had played a sold-out show in Boston where people paid over $100 a ticket just to see this guy. 
and you post up in a busy subway and the, the experiment is, are people gonna pay attention? Are people gonna even notice? Over the course of 45 minutes, he plays six Bach pieces, which according to the article that I read were some of the most intricate musical pieces that have ever been created. And here he is playing on his $3.5 million violin and over the course of 45 minutes, 1,100 people pass by in front of him. 1,100 people pass by in front of him. Guess how many people stopped and listened? Six. Which means 1,094 people walked by and they just saw this as common, ordinary, blended into the background. And six people saw this as profoundly beautiful. Now, Jesus tells you this two story, these two stories to tell you that the treasure of the kingdom, it's right in front of your face, but it's so easy to miss. I mean, the first guy in the story, I mean, that field was not high-end beachfront property. It was just a field, had shrubs and weeds and rocks in it, and everybody else just saw it as just a normal, ordinary field, and this guy saw treasure. In the second story, you have this invaluable pearl, and it's right there on display. I mean, hundreds of other shoppers would have seen it, and they would just glossed right over it and passed over it. They saw it as common, ordinary. One guy saw it as priceless. On the surface, it's just a field, just a pearl, and yet if you have eyes to see it, it's treasure. And here's what Jesus is doing. He, I think he's saying, I want you to think about who I am. Think about who Jesus is. Jesus was a Middle Eastern homeless peasant that wandered around this obscure region in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And what was he doing? He was washing people's feet. He was feeding the hungry. He was hanging out with people that just needed a friend. And not that flashy. In fact, it, it, on the surface, it just, it just almost seems kind of boring. And then he dies this death that was reserved for criminals. And you can look at the story of Jesus and feel like there is absolutely zero power here. It's just boring. It's ordinary. Jesus is so easy to miss, and here's why. The claim of the Bible tells you that, that Jesus left the highest of highs, heaven itself, and he comes down to the lowest of lows, to live a life of obscurity and poverty. I mean, that is, that is humility on a whole nother scale. And it's because he's at the bottom, because he's serving people at the bottom, because he's defending the cause of the powerless and the voiceless, because he's, he's serving in the shadows, he's so easy to miss. And yet it's, it is that humility that is so profoundly beautiful. It's him going from the top all the way to the bottom to care for the people that the rest of the world has discarded. That is the beauty of Jesus. That's the treasure of Jesus. Now, if you identify as a Christian this morning, my guess is some of you are just bored. You're just bored with your faith. You've heard all this before. You know all this. You've been there. You've kind of done that. And uh, it's just common and ordinary to you. And, and can I just gently suggest that maybe you're bored with Jesus because when you look at him, you just see an ordinary field, as it were. You just see an ordinary pearl. And maybe there's treasure right in front of your face. 
and you've missed it. Maybe you're someone that doesn't consider yourself a Christian, and there's probably a lot of reasons why you don't believe this stuff, and uh, I'm sure we could have lots of great conversations over that, which I would love to, by the way. But can I gently encourage you to maybe take another look? Because for you, uh, maybe you think you know what you're looking at when you look at the Bible, you know what you're looking at when you look at the church, when you look at Christianity, when you look at Jesus, and it's just predictable to you. For you, it's like you're saying, okay, I know, I know what that pearl is worth, and it's not worth that much. But maybe, maybe you've missed something. Maybe there is treasure there right underneath your nose, and you've missed it. Maybe it's worth taking a second look to investigate, to dig around, and maybe find that there actually is treasure here. Because the treasure of the kingdom, it's just easy to miss by virtue of the nature of what the kingdom is. It's easy to miss. But secondly, if you see it, when you see it, it costs you everything. Let me show you. Look at verse 44. In that first story, the man who finds the treasure in the field, it says he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. And if that wasn't enough, in verse 46, in the second story, the man who finds this precious pearl, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. One thing that's pretty clear about what Jesus is telling us in these two stories, which we don't really want to hear, but he tells us anyway, is that following Jesus is going to cost you. He's pretty upfront about this, I think. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't hide this in the fine print. He just tells you. In fact, at another point, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, which is his way of saying you have to give up the rights to who is in charge of your life you're not in charge of your life anymore. When he says you have to take up your cross, that's his way of saying you have to give up your, you have to give up your very life. To choose Jesus is to choose loss. To follow Jesus means that you lose control, meaning you can't just spend your money any way that you want to anymore. You can't just do with your body sexually what you want to anymore. You can't just choose, well, I want to forgive that person, but I don't want to forgive that person. You, you, you don't have that right anymore. When, when Jesus becomes king in your life, you surrender your rights to him, which means you lose. To choose Jesus, is, it's, to, it's going to cost you everything. And in fact, to seek justice in our city, in the name of Jesus, it will cost you. To talk about race, especially as white people, it is going to cost you comfort because we are most definitely going to make mistakes as we try to talk about it. To work towards undoing the racist structures and norms in our country, it will cost you. It will cost you privilege. To empower certain people means that you lose some of your power. To reallocate resources in our city so that certain neighborhoods or certain schools get more funding means that some neighborhoods and some schools get less funding. To um, 
march with people of color, to listen to stories, to educate yourself about race and justice, uh, to pray for people, to, to pray for certain neighborhoods, that costs you. It costs you time. It will certainly cost you comfort. It might cost you friendships. I mean, to say Black Lives Matter or to post Black Lives Matter, it might cost you relationships. People might be offended, confused by that, think you're politicizing something. It might cost you relationships. Here's my point, is, 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 is seeking justice in our city will cost you. In the name of Jesus, it will cost you. To move into a different part of the, na- of the city, to send your kids into a different school, it's gonna cut into you, it's gonna cost you. But also think about this, to identify as a Bible-believing Christian in Midtown, that's going to cost you. I mean, there are going to be really, really smart people that think that you have committed intellectual suicide. Uh, There are going to be really compassionate, kind people that think that you're a bigot. To identify with Jesus in Midtown Memphis is going to cost you social capital. Progressives uh, will think that you're a um, uh, closed-minded bigot, and conservatives will think that you're a a brainwashed uh, socialist. (laughs) You lose both ways. It's going to cost you to identify with Jesus. It will cost you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Now, you may not be a Christian, and you're hearing this, and you're like, whoa, that sounds extreme, That sounds crazy. Like, this is like the crazy fundamentalist cult stuff. Following Jesus is going to cost you everything. And maybe your instinct is, okay, I'm I'm cool with Jesus saying we should love our neighbor and care for the poor, but you've got to take all this stuff in moderation. You've got to be moderate with even this Jesus. If you can't get too radical with this stuff, that's a fair fair point. Here's, Here's my response. I don't think anybody lives in moderation. Everyone does what these men in these parables are doing. We wake up every day and we make sacrifices for what we think is supremely beautiful, valuable to us. We gladly, whatever it is that we treasure, we gladly give up things for that thing. Uh, For example, I heard this story, or I heard this example from another pastor named Brian Habig, but he tells this uh, example, which think about it in your own life. Maybe for some of you, you, you love sleep. You love to sleep. In fact, coming out of college ministry, which Catherine and I have been doing for the past 11 years, we have known some students that can sleep till 2 p.m., 3 p.m., 4 p.m. No, doesn't, you know, no phase in them at all, just sleeping through the day, no problem. And yet for some of these people, maybe for some of you who love sleep, maybe you graduated, you got married, and you had a kid. And the child is up all throughout the night, crying, screaming, hungry, and now your sleep, your precious sleep is getting cut into so that you can feed and take care of this baby. And we've seen some of you, you're out walking around the grocery store like you came out of combat, like you're a zombie emerging from the apocalypse. What has happened? Well, you loved sleep, but here's this thing that came along that you found so much more valuable. Your child and that child's needs were so much more valuable to you that sleep became expendable. Whatever you treasure, you will sacrifice for. 
If you treasure having your body in a certain shape or in a certain size, you will sacrifice carbs, you'll sacrifice calories, you will get up and you'll sacrifice energy and sweat and time to go to the gym or go on runs to get the thing you treasure. If you, if you love being trendy, you will sacrifice money on cool clothes and nice haircuts and expensive jewelry and cool gadgets. I mean, if you, if you treasure your work, you will sacrifice rest, you'll sacrifice hobbies, you'll sacrifice relationships, maybe even your own family. My point is, we wake up every day willing to give up anything to get the thing that we treasure, what we love. Sacrificing for what we love isn't radical, it isn't crazy, it's just the necessity of love. It's what love demands. The kingdom is the treasurer that will cost you. It'll cost you everything. But here's the question, why in the world would you give up everything for the sake of the kingdom? Well, here's the last thing you have to see. It's because the treasure of the kingdom motivates you with joy. That's the only reason why you would give up everything. Unless it taps into your heart and you find it beautiful. Look at the first story again. When that man finds the treasure hidden in the field, look at what he does. It says in verse 44, then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. He finds that treasure and he does a quick cost benefit analysis. And here's what he comes to. He says, okay, what I'm going to lose here, which is basically everything that I own, it is not even comparable to what I'm going to get. And so I will joyfully give it all away so that I can have that. I mean, just think about it. If you were to come upon a field and in that field was an oil well that was generating millions and millions of dollars of income for you, and that field was for sale, only that field, the price tag of that field cost you everything that you owned, every asset, every article of clothing, every piece of furniture, everything in your pantry, I mean, it's a no-brainer. What you give up to get doesn't even compare because you get it all back anyway. You get it all back and then a hundred times more than that. It's not even a sacrifice when you put it in perspective. Jesus wants you to see that the kingdom of God is incomparable in worth. He wants you to see in the kingdom, you are promised eternal communion with God himself, which is what all of our souls are desperately craving. And not only that, on top of that, we are promised resurrection, new bodies. We're promised a healed and renewed world where there is no more racial injustice. There is no more COVID-19. We're promised forgiveness and acceptance and righteousness and glorification and eternal communion with God's people forever. Jesus wants you to see the breathtaking beauty of the kingdom of God and then out of joy realize this is so much better than anything that I have. It's worth giving it all away. Here's the thing. God doesn't just want to give you religious busy work. He's not interested in you just going to more meetings. You're too busy. You've got enough stuff to do already. What he is after is he's after your joy. He wants you to see something of 
incomparable value and for it to tap into your deepest loves and your deepest heart. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, Did you know that Jesus was driven by the same motivation that he's trying to drive you by? It's by joy. At another point in the Bible, later in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, which tells you that he had everything. God of gods, son of God, has all the resources in heaven and on earth, and he has it all, and yet at the cross, out of joy, he sells it all. He gets rid of it all. He trades in applause for shame. He traded in power for weakness. He traded in validation for rejection. He traded comfort for sorrow, and he traded life for death. Now, why in the world would he do that? Well, Hebrews tells you he, he, he does it joyfully because he had found his treasure. He had found his pearl of great price that to him, that thing was worth giving up everything for in order to get that thing. And you know what that thing is? It is you. It's you. You are his pearl of great price. You're his treasure that he thought it is worth it to me to give up everything to have you. Jesus would rather die than to live without you. The gospel of the kingdom tells us that long before Jesus is the pearl of great price to us, we were the pearl of great price to him. I'll end with this. Uh, When Catherine and I were dating early on, first few months that we were dating, we knew that it was inappropriate for us to tell each other that we loved each other, to drop the L-bomb on each other. And so what what we would do as an alternative substitute was that we would just tell each other, I like you and I miss you. And we would tell each other, I like you a lot. Because we knew, even though we felt such strong feelings for each other, we knew that that, wrong, that word means a lot. And so the day eventually came at some point when we were dating that the word got out, I love you. And man, I will tell you, early on dating, to say that word, to hear Catherine say that to me, it was like, oh, nothing is more exhilarating. Nothing is more exciting than to hear Catherine tell me, I love you. And to be able to say it back to her. Now, we've been married and we've known each other for, you know, 15 years now. And I would say at this point, she actually knows me. (laughs) She didn't know me when we were children 15 years ago. So when she tells me that she loves me now, I will tell you, it's not exhilarating, but it is so much more rich to me. It's so much more meaningful because she actually knows me now. She knows how selfish I am. She knows how resentful I can be. She knows how angry I can be. She knows the hidden evils of my heart. And for her to look at me and see me for the depths of who I am and still say, I love you. I am sticking with you. That is profoundly meaningful. That is the kind of love times infinity that God has for us. He looks at us and he sees us and he knows us. He actually knows us. He knows the evil things that we have done. He knows the good things that we have neglected to do. He knows that our affections for him are pitiful. And in light of all of that, 
he still spares nothing for us. He gives it all up just to get us. That's the kind of love that he has for us. Now, if you see that, why would you not give up your comfort? Why would you not give up your security? Why would you not give up your very life for him? Because if you have him, you have everything. You can give up everything that this world has to offer. And if you have him, you have everything. And if you have everything that the world has, has to offer and you don't have him, you got nothing. He is the great treasure. <sighs> My invitation for you this morning is to see the great love that he has for you and then to joyfully start taking risks joyfully start to give up your comfort, your security, your privilege, your power, your money, your time, your very life, because he is worth it. Amen. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see what is so easy to miss, an invisible God, yet that has all of the meaning of this life, a God that offers us communion with yourself. Give us eyes to see it and give us hearts that are deepened and expanded that we might find you to be treasure. And out of love and joy for you, gladly give it all away for you, for your name's sake. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.